Welcome. I'm Dr. Brian Williams, a social and bioethicist, also president of McCall College in McCall, Idaho. And we're into our, our fourth section of two lectures. So this lecture will be called 4A. And we are working on an overall theme of helping healthcare become healthy and caring. We're also constructing a new bioethic, which I've called a, a Pacific Northwest bioethic, that is a, a, a unique for our generation uh, use of a method in ethics that you can see throughout the history of ethics, and that's using symmetrical pairing to accomplish moral uh, deeds. And so we're rediscovering it, renaming it, making it appropriate to our time and era, and presenting it today. Today, the uh, lecture that we'll be working on, I've entitled Proposals for Healthy Healthcare and Society. As always, if there's any questions that you're having about some of the ideas that we've presented or that we will be presenting, we will certainly try and track those questions uh, on, the, on YouTube or the various media that this lecture is coming. A new, a new uh, uh, place that the lectures will be on is uh, on Spotify. And so uh, if uh, you have interest in listening to it in its oral form, um, then the, uh, the, the website that you'll want to f uh, search for is Dr. Ethics Transforms. Dr. Ethics Transforms. And that's the new uh, podcast that these lectures will also be available on. And so I look forward to receiving any questions that come from our, our information today that we're presenting. And I look forward to the opportunity of advancing this thinking uh, wherever it leads. So today we'll be doing a case study with uh, dueling parents that we introduced uh, last, uh, last lecture in 3B. We'll be introducing the new yet old 21st century Pacific Northwest ethic, which broadly is considered holistic symmetrical ethics. Uh, and so we will also be doing a practical application in family, healthcare, and politics. And we'll wrap up our lecture series. The case study. Our third case study, entitled Dueling Parents. The conservative father and the progressive mother are disagreeing again. This time it's about vaccines. A new mRNA vaccine for both flu and COVID was just approved for children older than five. The family has a history of both diseases ravaging older members of the immediate family. The dad's family has been much healthier with a faith-based determination to rely on faith for medical crises. The mom's family has fought numerous battles with these bugs. Vaccines are routine in her family. The parents are in the ER with a 17-year-old child with suspected influenza. 
However, COVID has not been ruled out yet. Symptoms are 24 hours old. The social worker is with them now. The hospitalist has recommended the new vaccine as it has the ability to mitigate symptoms of both diseases if used in the first few days. The father refuses. The mother agrees. You are the senior RN. What do you do? So what's your instinctive response? And as the RN, uh, often the, uh, your training as a medical professional uh, helps you to lean in to available medical technology. And so that training probably nudges you in the direction of strongly encouraging the vaccine. And so that instinct is probably what you would, what you would rely on. Uh, and so in essence, you're agreeing with the mother who has agreed to the, to the vaccine. And so what's shaped your decision? Your background, your, your history with medical technology, the opportunity to, to deliver a positive force for good uh, would certainly be shaping you. Uh, your own instincts uh, may be a pro-vaccine family that may have encouraged you to, uh, to, to use the vaccine. Um, and uh, other medical professionals around you would also be encouraging you to use the current medical technology that has been approved. Uh, and so there tends to be a risk element to healthcare that uh, medical professionals tend to lean into. Um, but there are two consequences, uh, 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 and probably many more. And those, those consequences would first to run headlong into the father's objections. And uh, we have discovered as we've come out of the COVID pandemic that faith-based, uh, 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 a faith-based background lends support to not engaging in technology terribly quickly. And throughout the, horse, the course of humanity, we have seen that uh, for various reasons, families uh, don't leap into medical technology quickly, and some refuse them out, outright. And, and part of the support system that people have uh, may, may, may encourage them to not do that. Let me just adjust the computer here. It looks like we've got an issue. Ah, there we go. And so those consequences uh, would, would lead for you to pause. If you could get both of the parents to agree, it's obviously something that you would go ahead with. But when you have a, a parent uh, disagreement, then it, it certainly is time to pause and pull back and begin to, uh, to think, uh, think about uh, what you might do. The next uh, uh, level that we, we've asked you to, to consider is facts. Uh, what's a hospitalist? Well, those are, are uh, in, in, typically in uh, those with internal medicine uh, specialties or a broad-based specialty that is uh, uh, defined to be in the hospital uh, permanently. And so as opposed to a clinical practice, the hospitalists have a hospital practice. And so they are often available to the medical staff uh, and give hospital-based information as a result of their, their background and training. 
uh, you might want to look at what the information on the new vaccine is. What are the, what are the issues? Are you up to date uh, with the vaccine? As far as the vaccine itself, it's not available to us right now, but it is close. And so it's an interesting vaccine to look at. And part of the purpose of this case study is to get ready. This vaccine is, is on the horizon and each family may need to make these decisions. And so bioethics wants you to practice before you have to act. And so this practicing is valuable for all people aware of bioethical issues. And so there's lots of facts that you can, that you can, you can glean. And so we want you to consider your primary characters uh, and to enumerate them as primary, secondary, or tertiary. And these are the key stakeholders uh, in, in the area. And there's some immediate primary. Um, obviously, the, the, uh, the, the child is a primary stakeholder. Obviously, the parents are primary stakeholders, a hospitalist, and you. Um, but there's others that are around. Uh, and so the, the secondary stakeholders, I would certainly want to define as medical staff that's in the ER available, trying to make similar decisions as uh, they are going to have other cases uh, that are presenting in the ER. You're, you're going to have the, the faith-based institutions that the father is a part of, and they're going to be uh, possibly available, po maybe in a chaplaincy role uh, within the hospital, and so they may be immediately at hand and should be considered. You're going to have the drug company that's provided as a tertiary stakeholder. They certainly have provided a medicine and are interested in the outcomes and the success of their medicine. Uh, and so they would be interested. The hospital itself would certainly be a stakeholder in this. And so you'll want to be considering um, the, various, the various stakeholders and uh, be thinking uh, as you're doing this development what their response would be and what their contributions would be uh, to the development of your thinking. You want to frame up one key ethical issue, and that's uh, what, what you think is most important as a competing claim between two parties. And should one party do something or should the second party do something? And so um, the, the simplest ethical is do you do, you do it uh, against the father's wishes uh, or do you not do it, build a community of support and and then see if there's enough if there's enough conversation and develop thoughts so that you would go through it uh, and so y y you would want to think about that particular ethical issue and there's many others that you might think about and one of the th one of the ways I like to to uh, to build on this uh, is what we're going to see in a second but what are the specific tensions principles or rights that are in tension? And uh, obviously, um, you have uh, the, the, uh, the, the right of the father is competing against the rights of the mother. Um, you have that, that uh, individual choice that is allowed to parents in the care of their children. Um, and so those rights are clearly intention to, to uh, not harm the, the child and to do good. And so those would be two. The, the father's clearly worried about harm that the uh, vaccine could cause to the, patient, to the uh, child. The mother is wanting to do good and to engage in a potential um, 
beneficial vaccine for the child. And so those two are clearly intention, and as we've seen with symmetrical ethics, um, I, I place them together, and they are working in tandem in this particular case. Um, we would, we, and there's other principles and rights that you might want to think about, but I think those uh, would be ones I'd, I'd want for you to think about. There is uh, a recommendation to apply the Williams Method of Moral Assessment, which is to first define the issues, um, to assess the virtue. And so um, the nurse would like to, to do good, um, uh, and so, and to move forward. If you were to invert that, in this case, you would, you would invert the, the symmetrical pair of, of doing good and doing no harm. If you were to invert that, uh, what, and, and you were to step back, what would you do? Another, another way of assessing uh, this one is to move into the community and to see whether the, the, uh, the care of the one uh, with, the, uh, with the mother as a proponent uh, and the many, and you grow your community of support. Uh, and so if you could grow it, would that be a benefit? Uh, and, so, and so if you could stand back and grow the community, would that be a beneficial act? And then to oscillate wisely. I think for a plan of action, the wisest course would be not to press ahead, even if you even if you had the authorization to press ahead with the vaccine, but to step back and see if you could build your community of support would be the wisest plan of action in this case. Uh, and, uh, and to take, if you have a couple days before the vaccine loses its efficacy, is to use those couple days uh, for your benefit. Uh, and if it didn't put the, uh, the patient at risk, to see if over the next 24 hours you could Build a community support uh, with the chaplain, with the, uh, the faith-based community that may be around the father, uh, and also the community around the mother. And just see if you, could, if you could put as many people in the room as possible and see if there would be agreement to do it. Uh, are there any other paths that you could take, could take uh, as opposed to the vaccine? Uh, any other medications that could treat the the, uh, the disease as it's presenting to you? Was there, is there other, th other areas that you could do? Okay. Bioethics. We presented you with the four principles of bioethics. Autonomy, uh, which is that sense of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of leadership for yourself. Um, and uh, beneficence, to do good, non-maleficence, to do no harm, and justice, which is often uh, fairness. Uh, and I think what we've seen within the field of bioethics is these aren't resilient enough for disruptions such as a pandemic. And particularly, autonomy needs, needs reconsideration. I'm offering the, the alternative that instead of, of presenting these as static principles, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, four static principles, if we, if we were to put them in symmetry, 
that that would respond with a recognition that one in many shows a needed counterweight of, in, of interdependence. So autonomy, certainly, in that sense of, of, uh, of defining um, itself as, as oneness, and to have the right uh, to, to, uh, to, to lead and control your own life, that certainly needs the, the, uh, the symmetrical adjustment of one and many, that the many also has a voice. And, and we saw in the, in the pandemic that the community needed a voice. And while many individuals controlled their own lives, they certainly uh, were embedded in a community. Uh, and that, counter, that counterweight of interdependence is my alternative to say these, uh, that autonomy and interdependence are symmetrical. They work together. In a pandemic, interdependence would serve the community, and that virtue must be elevated. And then the recognition that we're pretty well out of the pandemic now, and we can move back into a, a sense of autonomy with our patient care. Um, but the, uh, that, that as we go through the, the course of history, that there's oscillation in dynamic tension between autonomy and interdependence. And this becomes the decision of leadership. Do we emphasize the autonomy of the individual, or do we recognize there's an interdependence within the community that must be, uh, must be offered? And that's uh, where our understanding of lean comes into. And in our culture, it's wise to lean into autonomy. If we were living in Europe, it might be wise to lean into interdependence. But in the American context, leaning into autonomy probably has the best result. You're not forgetting interdependence, uh, but you're, you're recognizing autonomy. What we also discovered in our burned out is that our our determined effort for patient-centered healthcare had a consequence, and the patient centering was was not helpful during the pandemic. And so, we need to also be aware of staff-centered care. And so, our patient-centered care is important. It's the reason the hospital exists. But if there isn't staff-centered care, then the hospital begins to degrade from overwork uh, and the stress of being a healthcare provider. And so, so that's a different type of one and many, the patient versus the staff and the organization around the patient. And so to oscillate when you're in crisis and make sure your staff-centered care is also receiving attention, was the plea throughout the pandemic that our staff was being overwhelmed by the needs of the individual patients. And so that's another way you can think about autonomy and interdependence, is, the, is to improve uh, your patient-centered care and put it in symmetrical uh, a pairing with staff-centered care. Uh, and both of those need to be uh, considered 
whenever you're developing policies that you're trying to activate and make sure your healthcare is sound, you must work with them together. Uh, and the lean of a hospital will be into patient-centered care, but to recognize that there will be times when you have to adjust that. Uh, and again, that's a choice of wise leadership. We're also introducing a sense of Pacific Northwest bioethics. Bioethics four principles are firmly entrenched in the Eastern Seaboard, uh, and their bioethics community is vigorous. Uh, and so we discovered that, uh, that all of the PhD programs are east of the Mississippi, uh, and so those are leading to bioethicists in the field, and that is, uh, and, and responding to the training that they have received. And the four principles of bioethics are a mantra uh, that, uh, that are active in that community. But I think it's time, and the pandemic forced us to recognize it's time for a reappraisal. Bioethics is a subset of philosophy, and that leans toward Europe. And our European grounding uh, is essential uh, for the development of, uh, of a, a useful and health, helpful um, uh, philosophy. And so philosophy inevitably begins in ancient Greece and works its way through Europe and into the American context. Uh, but that has, has a price to pay. Uh, and so I think it's time for an appraisal, reappraisal of centering our philosophy within the, uh, the, the European and the English concepts. The Pacific Rim is open to ideas such as yin-yang. We have extraordinarily successful ancient cultures that come out of the Pacific Rim, whether it's Chinese or Japanese, whether it's Asian Pacific, uh, whether, uh, whether it's the, the Philippines, you have extraordinary uh, successful cultures that have active moral climates. And one of the more interesting ones that I think is important is that Taoist understanding of yin and yang. Uh, and we need to be open to that. That is a symbol you see throughout our culture. And therefore, our culture is open to that kind of thinking. We need to make sure our bioethic in our hospitals is also open to that type of symmetrical thinking of, uh, of, of what the yin-yang represents in Taoist and ancient Chinese culture. And so that's an area that I think we can, we can draw from productively and meaningfully to help build a Pacific uh, Northwest bioethic. The God Committee of Seattle helped begin the field of bioethics. It showed that community is important for complex decisions. And so that sense of community has always been a part of bioethics. Uh, it isn't just an individual that uh, is making decisions. It's building an effective community that makes sure those decisions uh, have community support. Uh, and so we begin to see that sense of, of importance of community. And that again pushes us onto the Pacific Rim uh, and encourages us to sort of say, what does the Pacific Northwest offer us for a new bioethic? 
when it comes to our key topics for um, for, for the, the 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 importance in bioethics, if we take our four principles and ask the questions about what what do they offer and what are they missing, then I think we can begin to see the importance of our symmetrical pairing. If we take autonomy, clearly autonomy has been important in delivering informed consent in healthcare, in ensuring uh, competence uh, of those staff members that are offering uh, care for the staff. It's made sure that there's disclosure of information to the patient and that the patient can make their own decisions, which is essential to the understanding of, it, of autonomy. And so if we, if we look at its symmetrical pair in interdependence, we discover that the Ethics Committee is a wonderful example of interdependence as it forces the decision-making uh, or it allows the decision-making to, to be made in a broader context, which supports the individual physician or the, the medical staff team that's around the patient. Uh, and if we push that into an ethics committee, then we get a broader sense of the support for a particular decision. But there's also that sense of community information, that the community may need to know what's going on. And we saw in the pandemic that because autonomy had been so rigorous in information, that the community was devoid of so much important information on how they should act to protect themselves. And so we need to make sure there's that recognition of the virtue of interdependence so that we can inform the community about challenges that all people need to face. Uh, and we also saw with, with um, uh, that autonomy had a real impact on staff burnout. And so interdependence forces you to think about the staff contributions to healthcare, to, uh, to their own individual mental health, and to making sure that we are, we're developing policies on, um, uh, on, on effective healthcare. We, we, we have suggested um, that, uh, that non-maleficence uh, is, is in pair with beneficence. Uh, and the symmetrical pairing uh, allows these two to work together. Non-maleficence is so important. It gives us that, uh, that, that very ancient sense of the, the, the doctrine of double effect or the principle of double effect. And that's if you do something and something else happens. Your, your primary intent uh, of not doing harm, even though it may have had a more serious outcome, uh, is, is an important uh, principle so that uh, those that do something uh, and something bad happens uh, are still op operative on that uh, attempt to, to do no harm. Um, it's been an important um, participant on killing and letting die. How do we, how do we allow life to end effectively? And uh, do no harm uh, is your a key element in in trying to protect those that uh, are tortured at the end of their lives, and to make an effective and meaningful choice uh, on how to end life well. It's been helpful in proxy decision making 
um, and uh, and so to let others uh, participate and to make sure that harm is not occurring uh, and so in that proxy decision makers uh, are the ones that are slowing the medical care down so that harm isn't happened um, and beneficence uh, certainly certainly at its worst turned into paternalism and that's where the there is one decision maker and that decision maker forces their decisions in as the sole source of decision making and that uh, uh, 50 years ago uh, was was the way that medical care operated the physician made the decision and the physician drove those decisions into the health care of, of the patient and so autonomy has uh, pushed back on paternalism and and made sure that it was a broader sense and so beneficence and doing good is is a key element of healthcare and that invokes a, a, a modest paternalism at every turn and so we have to recognize that we have to keep our paternalism in tension with with non-maleficence to make sure that we're not harming and but we're leaning into beneficence and that has created our good samaritan laws where we want people to risk uh, to do good uh, and to protect them if uh, those attempts uh, go awry. When it comes to uh, the key topic of justice, justice meaning fair opportunity, uh, and certainly we want healthcare to be available to all, uh, the conversation on the right to healthcare. And, uh, and so that right for it to be successful, in my judgment, needs to divide healthcare into primary and secondary and tertiary healthcare. The right to health to primary healthcare should be fought for at all levels of our community. We need a right to primary healthcare so that we can receive uh, antibiotics early and quickly so that we can care for, for uh, uh, the, those that are in need. Uh, and so we certainly can't do the tertiary health care with the advanced surgery uh, that is an alternative to so many. Uh, that would bankrupt our nation. Uh, and yet we do need to make sure that we build a right care to primary health care across this country. And if we were to subdivide that, I think we would have more success in driving the idea into our legislative community because they recognize the waste that can occur uh, in the tertiary level health care. And so if we could divide that right to health care to a right to primary health care, then I think we'd be far more successful. Justice has also been important for allocation of scarce resources. We saw that in our case study where we looked at the brand new uh, kidney dialysis machine. And when it launched, we only had a few machines and we had a lot of patients. And so justice is a crucial concept in making sure that we're fair as we deliver uh, scarce resources into the healthcare population. And we see that with organ transplants to this day. We just don't have enough. And so they're tasked to be a justice model that helps us to do that. So that whenever we're needing to ration healthcare, 
that everyone feels that it's fair and that they have a fair shake at thriving, at surviving, if not thriving. Um, and so our, our righteous indignation that I have paired with justice is that driving force to say, we need healthcare in the primary, in the prim primary diseases that we all face. Uh, and we've begun to see some of that with the mandates of Obamacare, as there are many, many medications now, I'm thinking of the statins, that uh, are available throughout the community at, at almost no cost. And that's uh, a, a wise response to, for, uh, within primary health care. And so we're beginning to see that health care coming through the insurance side of health care. But we need to fight for primary health care. And all of us need to be indignant that primary health care isn't a right in this country. We need to make sure that there's fair financing. Uh, and we've begun to recognize that uh, these surprise bills that are happening in the ER and in the insurance industry uh, are eliminated. And so that the, the, uh, the, the financing of health care is fair. Uh, and we also begin to recognize that uh, we need to be able to die better in the American context and we need to be able to work on how we can die better. And we need to be indignant at the, uh, the poor way that all of us die. And right to die may push it too far, uh, but we certainly need to be indignant about the current way that we all die. And we need a better way of managing that. And I, this is maybe a good time to, to reinsert my, con, my Confucian uh, uh, thought, is that a good deed that is too expensive is not a good deed. Let's make sure that phrase resonates across this country. A good deed that is too expensive is not a good deed. That comes from Confucius. We've also seen uh, that there are some areas in professional ethics that certainly have been improving. Um, that's veracity, privacy, confidentiality, fidelity. All of those terms are certainly been an improvement uh, as we've thought about ethics and that we didn't just hold to what the individual healthcare professional wanted to deliver but that there was a professional core of the many around each professional person. And so professional ethics is making sure that the many are involved, not just the one in healthcare. And so that idea of one and many is a fundamental pairing that may be used to organize intellectual life. We are individuals but we are individuals set in community. That's a natural extension of the concept of one and many. These are symmetrical concepts that are optimized when working together. These are opposites that are both true. You are one, you are many, and the many forms one. And so 
These, the, these are complex ideas. However, humans tend to be happy with one side of a pair, such as individuals. Need to be free. Duty is ignored, often, yet essential. So we certainly are, we live life to our own personal benefit so often. Uh, and so in the American context, we've lived the freedom of the individual as a core concept in, in areas such as Idaho, where I reside, uh, and, uh, and really in the entire country, was built on breaking away from the, uh, the, the lack of freedom that was being imposed on the American context. And so that idea is a core concept to the American identity. But what we have done is we've tended to ignore our duty to our community. And that was brought into full light during the pandemic. Individuals who are only thinking about themselves and were ignoring what the community needs were. And so we need to elevate the core idea of duty uh, so that we understand that we live in a community that has expectations of each and every one of us that's essential. And so we also see that when we're in arguments, we tend to argue on one side of the argument. And so for us to be more successful in our social con uh, conversation, we have to look to the other side. And I've always tried to train students that you'll have more success if you understand the other side of an argument, use it, and make sure you prove that you understand the other side of the argument to those you're, you are uh, in, in argument with. And so the success of an argument isn't you restating your own side of, of the argument over and over again. That just reifies. That just strengthens. That just makes into rock the, uh, the, your arguments. And it really doesn't solve the problem. But if you understand the other side, and I'm not saying you agree with them, that's the other side of the argument. But if you understand the other side of the argument, show you understand, show its weaknesses, show the issues, uh, then you can have success at moving people uh, from wherever they are to where you think they should be. And that's essential to the conversation uh, of the marketplace and the fair exchange of ideas in the marketplace. We need to awaken the symmetrical pair. Individuals need freedom. If we invoke one and many, we'll see if we have one, we offer the inversion of many, community. Individuals have a fundamental duty to their organizing community. Freedom only comes when those tasks with duty serve effectively. And so, the Williams uh, Moral Assessment is reawakening the one and many so that we, when we're in a challenging issue uh, of, uh, of any of our social issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's right to die, whether it's gun control, wherever we are, if we want to understand and change the way our society is functioning, we have to invoke the symmetrical pair to have a reasonable chance of changing our society. And so that kind of argumentative strategy is what we're trying to awaken. We also have to recognize that there's other symmetries uh, that we, we may need to understand. And during our Lecture 3 series, 
we talked about the, a, a new political theory. Uh, and it's to recognize that in conservatives and, and progressives are symmetrical pairs. They work together. And we don't tend to think that way in our society. But as I was trying to say, polarization is the basis of unity. Well, how can I say that? It's because conservatives and progressives are symmetrically linked. Uh, and, uh, and for any conservative to try and move uh, social policy, they need to understand their symmetrical pair, and that's the progressive. What is the pro why is the progressive there? What, what are they trying to think? What are they trying to say? What are their weaknesses? Uh, and the inverse is true for our progressives. They have to understand what the conservatives are trying to say with their policy development. We also have to recognize there's some other asymmetries. In our families, what, uh, what has been clear to me is that there's symmetries in parenting. And a child needs a symmetrical pairing around them. And that is nurturing and disciplining parents. Uh, and so uh, what we've often seen in our society is the weakness when one parent tries to be both. And uh, it is obviously successful, but it is so much more difficult to accomplish. And so if there is a nurturing parent, and it could be uh, a natural parent, it could be a godparent, it could be grandparents, it could be a friend or family or uncle, if there's a nurturing parent, the child is healthier, but that must be in symmetrical tension with a disciplinary parent. Uh, and so these two concepts are in symmetrical pairing. And it is important for us to improve our families by recognizing this concept. We need to understand that our churches are symmetrical pairs. And what we have seen uh, over, over hundreds of years is that churches divide because they try and break their symmetrical pairing. And so a classic illustration in my mind is the classic understanding of the Protestant and the Catholic. They are symmetrical pairs. And if you listen to the language, they are simply uh, uh, opposites that need to function together. And we see that as every church divides. What they're attempting to do is to eradicate their symmetrical pair. But the minute they break and divide, that pairing reemerges. So if you have a left and a right, and you try and break your church so that only the left is together and you eject the right, then the minute the, the, the church is broken, if you look at it again, you have a left and right in the new church. And so, and so the Protestant, the Protestant uh, development in America has been this on steroids, where churches divide, and then immediately afterwards, they discover that they have right and left thinking still in their church. Uh, and, it, and, and so that really begin, begins to become unhealthy as the, as the church uh, narrows its understandings uh, in, in a way that is really harmful to the church. Every church must have a left and right. 
and they must work together. It has a conservative community. It has a progressive community. And the key to a healthy church is learning how to use that symmetrical pairing to your advantage. Use the energy that could be used to destroy it to make it productive for human society. And so our churches are classic illustrations of desperately trying to break their symmetrical pairing to their own disadvantage in the long run. And so, and so we need to understand that these are symmetrical pairs in these religious organizations. And when it comes to the individuals, we see the symmetrical pairing of male and female as a biological reality that creates life. Now there's all sorts of ways uh, that, 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 we can, uh, uh, that we can create life. Uh, we are smart enough to be able to do that, it, it, but, but the natural way that we have been given, it comes through the male and the female. So we must see the, we must see the symmetries. And that will allow you to see the whole. When you see the parts, the wise person also sees the whole. Now act in dynamic tension to manage the wholeness, as opposed to just seeing the symmetries and focusing on your part uh, and emphasizing your part of the symmetry to also recognize the whole and to work towards wholeness. And that ability to recognize symmetry comes from complex thinking. And so we, become, we come back to that idea that we started with, is how do you develop complex thinking? Complex thought yields virtuous action. Our discussion on rights and duties, as well as conservatives and progressives, requires complex thought. As well, thought must be attached to action to form a good community. Virtuous communal action requires good leaders. How do we confront our recent spate of poor leaders who seem bent on self-aggrandizement instead of serving others? How do we construct good people that construct good communities, that construct a good society? We start with the individuals. And we offer to them complex thinking. What do we do with those individuals? Recognize and elevate the symmetrical elements in a person's life. Nurturing and disciplining guides and relationships. Involve all in character organizations. Involve all in lifelong learning with symmetrical input of conservative and progressive ideas. Recognize and elevate truths, especially complex truths, as soon as possible. We then need to ask, how do we organize individuals effectively? Well, that first grouping are organized pairs. We need to recognize and elevate all forms of bonding to form stable relationships. We need to recognize the right of organizations to define, to define 
appropriate pairing within their organizations. We need to recognize and elevate the symmetrical relationships of nurturing and disciplining adults in the lives of children. And I think we can argue in all of our lives. We all need nurturing and disciplining around us for an effective quality life. And that creates the effective relationships for all of us. We need to build quality villages, the many, around all children, the one. Then we must ask what organizations come out of these relationships. I call them character building organizations. We need to recognize and elevate the role of those organizations that have a mission to influence character in a positive way. 4-H, Rotary, Boy and Girl Scouts, churches, temples, mosques, synagogues, universities, forever. There are lots of character building organizations that do it in a positive way and that structures around the individual an opportunity of living well in relationship to others. We need to hold these organizations accountable to build character in all who uphold their values. How have we done this in the past? Well, one of the, one of the segments that we have done it through are our political communities. Let me offer a little background when it comes to political communities. The selection of community, state, and federal leadership prior to the 1960s was fairly easy with one primary criteria. Was the person a member of the Protestant church, of any one of the Protestant churches? Could be Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican. They had to be a member of a Protestant church. What is interesting is that you can look at the American Revolution and recognize that the leadership prior to the Re Re Revolution was Anglican. And it, what is so interesting is that after the Revolution, the leadership was primarily Presbyterian. And so there seems to have been a battle to see which Protestant church they should be a member of. But they had to be a member of the Protestant church. John F. Kennedy a Catholic showed the rigidity that had to be broken for a non-Protestant to be elected. With the recession of the Protestant criteria into the background, nothing has replaced it. And so I have a proposal. My proposal is that one must show active participation in the many. All candidates for political office must announce their membership in a character building organization. Rotary, Boy Scouts, churches, synagogues, temples, any organization that actively promotes character development. That creates the relationship to know that a political person is not only an effective one but he's also, or she's also, effective in the many. You might ask, what if they join a nonsense organization, the mighty group of nonsense characters? The public will know that character is meaningless 
to that candidate. And as you look at your spate, uh, your slate of uh, political uh, characters across the current election cycle, what character organizations are they a part of? We used to know that routinely. We would know the church that the person was part of. Well, let's ask the question, what character organizations is the current slate a part of? Are they in Rotary? Are they in 4-H? Are they part of a church? Where are they accountable to a smaller group of people so that their character can be made aware into that particular community? If they join a nonsense organization, simply to uh, abide by the criteria set to them as a political operative, we will know it. And we will know that character has no meaning to them. And we can get rid of some of these, char the, the, these morally decrepit politically, uh, political people that have snuck into our political leadership. We ask for wise political leaders to guide us. We need some criteria that will help us to select our political leadership. We have to recognize that our political, uh, that, uh, that our political structure is symmetrical, that there's a symmetrical reality of political structure. One, uphold the voting process of all citizens. We have to allow people to vote, and that process must be as broad as possible and as protected as possible to make sure that there's safe voting, effective voting, and, and that we have an opportunity of voting. But we also have to think about the many, um, that the de democratic structures allow exercise of the community's voice, and that uh, voice must be louder within the American context. We have to validate party loyalists as important to the political process. We need conservatives who are loyal to the conservative values, flying the flag of conservatism. We need progressives who are loyal to progressive ideals and push these ideals into the, idea, into the, the marketplace of ideas. Uh, and we want them to do that. But we must enhance the middle of those who make the election decisions at election time. And my recommendation is don't become a, become a member of the parties unless you are a party loyalist. Because if you do, they basically know how you will vote. And if they can get enough of you in any particular area, they will radicalize their policies because they know what the vote is. And so what, if, if people move to the middle, and in our political structure is to be an independent, then, they, then either party will not know how you will react to their party policies until we come to an election. And so it's important for them to moderate their policies because they don't know if they've got enough of the electorate on their side. So I strongly encourage the middle to remain independent. We've come to the end of this lecture.
And so this particular lecture, we have struggled to offer to you proposals for healthy health care and a healthy society. And I trust we've been successful at giving you some meaningful steps that you can do to make health care meaningful, but also how to make society healthier. And so we want health care to be healthier and more caring. We want society to be healthier and more caring. And so hopefully the ideas that we've introduced to you today are meaningful ways you can, func you can improve uh, our society and healthcare as an individual, as a pair, as a political structure, as a healthcare unit, uh, as, an, as a nation. And you can continue to grow these ideas. I trust you found something helpful here. I trust you found something meaningful. Thank you for your time, for sharing with us in these ideas, and we would love to hear from you. And uh, we would also be happy if you were to listen to our new podcast on Spotify, Dr. Ethics Transforms, as well as share these ideas with others so that we can make our healthcare healthier and caring and our society healthy, and caring. Thank you for watching and listening.